0: And so we have thought together in in two talks um, about leadership. And in the first one, we were thinking about the need for humility. And and humility coming by rightly understanding who we are in light of who God is and what Christ has done. And so we spent some time thinking about Jesus coming thank you, coming after us in the gospel, coming through that descent, moving his way all the way down to humanity to rescue us out then that call for us to live in humility. So the, the model for our, our leadership as men and the motivation for it has got to be the gospel of Jesus. We've got to look at what Jesus has done and be compelled by what he's done for us. And then this morning, thinking about knowing where we're going, we can't lead very well if we don't know where we're going. That's just not helpful to anybody. So having clarity on that and that we're actually going somewhere and we know it. So living like we are part of the kingdom of God, and we are seeking the things that are above. And that's an active work that we are to do. And then this final one, we want to think about bringing people with us. And that's what leadership is. Leadership's not just taking yourself where you need to go, but bringing other people along with you. And so we'll look at a very familiar passage in that, the Great Commission um, in Matthew 28. So as you go ahead and and turn to, to Matthew 28, um, I, Though I don't have a, a, a job in a, a secular employment, I work in the church. Um, I had for many years before, and um, some of the burdens that some I've heard some of you guys mention in the small groups, and I know that you deal with on a day-to-day basis in your jobs and your vocations and your um, just pursuits and you're your dealing with and grappling with, being Christian in the public square and grappling with making, needing to provide for your family, trying to be faithful as a Christian, trying to be a faithful church member, and it sometimes it could kind of feel like these things are uh, are being pushed together when they feel like they're actually separate. And so you have this like Christian life, church, and how you feel and how you think, and then you have the the professional life. And as you go, and I got this one brother at church um, who we have lots of conversations about this. He's a a real estate um, developer and he's very intense. And sometimes he'll answer the phone and he'll be in real estate mode. And he's talking to me and he's just like getting after me. And I'm just like, well, I'm your pastor. What are you doing? Like we're friends. What are you yelling at me for? (laughs) And he's like, sorry, sorry, wrong, wrong. I'm just like, you, you've got to, I would like to see like, it's David, right? I'm like, yeah, you. I would like to see Christian David eclipse business David, right? I tell him, and let's let's push towards that. Let's move towards that. So that's something we've been working on and talking about. But I think that's appropriate to think about um, everybody and how, how we're working. It's not like we're we're trying to keep these things separate. Uh, actually, the call for discipleship and following Jesus in your various contexts is not just to take the ethics of being a good person into your workplace but actually take the, the, the message of Jesus Christ into your workplace. Take, take it in there and glorify God if it's in you know accounting by working hard and being the best accountant in, in the company, the best you can be. But to glorify God in that, it's not about you. Um, it's it's um, being a professor, but teaching to the glory of God. Even if it's a subject that's not theology, you're able to teach in such a way that glorifies God and interacts with students and faculty in a way that honors the Lord. Uh, If you're a doctor and you're seeing patients and you're spending time with them, treating them with dignity and respect and honor and thinking like a Christian, even maybe praying for them, having that burden that you have. like There's lots of ways we do it, and it may not even be explicitly evangelism, but living in that way that brings honor to Christ as a Christian in the public square. So I would just encourage you not to see this as two separate things, but smush them together and say, I live as a Christian, so what does it mean for me? to live as a Christian at my job and in my community, in my interactions. It's not just evangelism, although we want to pray for those opportunities, but how do I even think about orienting my life and why am I here and what am I doing? All right, so that's just kind of an aside to think about as as we get started. The other one that I was just really struck by this, and I don't know, I'm getting, I don't know how many of you guys are either 47 or older. I'm 47. Okay, so a few of us. So you guys have probably had a similar thought, and maybe some of you guys that are five years younger started thinking like this. I I was thinking recently, you know, with the last few years, I'm like, what am I even doing? Like, kind of like Ecclesiastes. Like, what's the difference in life? Like, what's the matter? You know, and and I happened to be at my dad's house, and we were having a cup of coffee and talking about stuff, and he was like, hey, uh, let's... I want to show you some pictures. This guy is out like of the blue and he wants to show me uh, some pictures of like, family tree. And I guess this is what happens when you're in your 70s. You want to start like making sure that everybody knows like who came before you and where they lived. And my dad, so he's, he's walking me through that and talking about it. And it was one point in it, and I was just like, so so my great-great-grandfather, his, that was John, right? And he's like, no, that's Frank. And he's like, no, it's John. He's like, oh, I got to look it up. Was it John or Frank, right? And he so said, he's looking it up. And it just struck me. I was like, Dad, we don't even know who these people are. Like, It's like you basically, two generations ago from you, you, we can't even remember the names. So for me, three generations. So then I just immediately, like, I got my kids, maybe their kids, and possibly their kids' kids will know who I am. After that, they're going to be like, was it Eric or Luke? Who was it? I don't know. Oh, well, my grandfather it was Luke. My great-grandfather was Eric, right? Like something like that. And I was just thinking, like, what's my life even mean? And I was just grappling with that and thinking about that. I don't know if you guys think like that and work it out. And, so, and suddenly you get real discouraged. Like, oh, you know, I'm, I'm writing code. I'm doing that all day. Does that even matter? Does it matter that I'm, you know, I'm... I'm a professor, I'm doing these things, I'm teaching here, and, and eventually somebody else is going to come in and do it. And that's the Ecclesiastes life. And you and you come to the end of it, and you get really discouraged. And then you can look and say, well, actually, if we're living for the glory of God, and we're living to, to please Him, and to honor Him, and to serve Him, then everything we do actually counts. And even though people may forget us, there's an eternal benefit an eternal blessing, an eternal uh, exponentially valuable reality of the things that we do by encouraging one another, blessing one another, serving one another, spending time in our church family and living as a Christian to glorify God. Because these things, I don't know how it's going to work out in eternity, but apparently the Lord keeps track of these things and they please him. And they come back up and maybe for blessings or for rewards, but certainly for meditation and reflection later on. These things don't get lost. And so suddenly it's like, well, while these other things are important, and they are, they're not ultimate, but there's this other stuff my Christian life and how I live and how I interact with people and the things that I do that actually has massive impact. And so I would encourage you today, as you think about this, you say, think about leadership, think about being humble. And the work of setting your mind on things that are above and not seeking the things that are below and doing the work of putting off and putting on and tuning your heart to sing God's praise and, and doing that and you think, oh, it's just another thing to fit into my life. No, I, I just want to submit that—that sh- that is our life. That's what we're called to do. And it's not something that's just going to evaporate when people forget our name. But it goes on and it goes forward and that work happens. One example of that and then we'll turn to the text. In that conversation with my dad, I I asked him a question because there were there were some names of like cousins that were Bible names. So I'm eighth generation Massachusetts, like nobody's ever moved out of the state. They're born there, they die there. Um, and we moved out for the military, and then that was actually things people were saying like, well, you don't leave, what are you doing? Get back. <laughs> um, and in God's timing, we got back. But as I was looking at the names on that of these people, there were Bible names like Boaz and, uh, you know, Elijah and Jeremiah, and names like that. I'm thinking, why, why were these Bibles not like Roman Catholic names? In my family, both sides were very Roman Catholic. Why do we have not, not Joseph and Peter and Paul, but these Old Testament prophets? What's, what's with that? And he says to me, oh, our family actually was Protestant until right here. And he pointed to it and he said, that's when great-grandfather married this Catholic woman. And your great-great-grandmother was very upset about that. And she said, you're going to take the whole family down into Catholicism. And he said, I'm going to marry her and it's going to be fine. And that's what happened. They all went to Catholic and I was the first one to get converted either. But he said to me, he said, you know what she said? She told him, I will continue to pray for you, your wife, and the kids, and all the other kids that are coming after. That there might be one that would get saved and bring it back on track. So who is this lady? I don't know. I don't even know her name. They couldn't remember the name. But she was a Christian, and her prayers were answered after she left. So I get converted, and my dad gets converted, and my wife gets saved, and kids get saved. The train gets back on the tracks, by God's grace. So here's this lady in a small town in Massachusetts, 200 years ago, or whatever, praying for her great-great-great-great-grandson. And he becomes a pastor, and he does that work. That blows me away, guys. Um, and she, what did she do? She made pies, and she cooked. She took care of the house. They had lived on a farm. What did she do? Insignificant, right? She prayed and she worked. And so I want to encourage you that the, the work of leadership might look a lot different, but some of it may bear fruit even after we go. And be encouraged with that. Let's look at Matthew 28. Look at some, think about this tonight. <clears throat> The end of Matthew's Gospel of Jesus being the King. Familiar verses, I'm sure, Matthew 28, the scene is after the resurrection of Christ, appearing to his disciples, and Matthew's about to to close his book. And Jesus is going to give this commission to his disciples. And I want to think a little bit about this commission that he gives. Think about how we're playing a part in that. So verses 16, we'll read 16 through 20. Now, the 11 disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus said, and Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. So we have this, this passage. What I want us to think about tonight is this main point, that leading people means you're bringing them somewhere and specifically thinking about this great commission so let's think first about the lord and his will Uh, we look at we look at the one who's giving the command is jesus and this jesus comes to him and he's going to speak to them now we know the story so this this might not strike us as significant but we, we know what's going on here this is the jesus who was crucified Died and was buried and then has since raised from the dead By his own power. He's defeated death and he's he's appeared to Hundreds of people and shown that he's actually alive furthermore He predicted his death and his resurrection on multiple occasions you can read through Mark chapter 8 through 11 three times He says not only he's gonna die But how he's gonna die and the fact that he's gonna be raised. He just kept on saying it and telling them this is what's going to happen and it happens just like he said and so he comes to them and he he speaks to them so the one who comes and the one who speaks is the lord who has absolute authority he is the king he is the lord god almighty and he comes and he speaks to them and he prefaces this commission that he's going to give them with a statement of his authority and this is really important for us to remember today he says all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me so he has 100 percent authority he is the king he, he rules he, there's nobody who outranks him when we tell people the gospel and they say what right do you have to tell me this so the answer is me in and of myself i have no right i have no authority I have no power in and of myself. But there is one who came and he lived and he died and he rose from the dead and he has all authority and he says through his word this. He has absolute, full, sovereign authority on heaven and on earth. He's, he's the king of kings. This is who he is and we, we've got to remember that, that he is the king. And so if, if the king is speaking to his disciples, then his disciples have to comply with what he says. He's not offering them suggestions and saying, guys, here's some good ideas. Maybe put it on the whiteboard, spitball ideas. Here we go. Maybe we'll do this. This is like, this is what you need to do. And he's telling them that. He's giving them a command. He's prefacing it with the right and the authority that all authority on heaven and earth has been given to him. And then he gives the, the, the command, and he says, verse 19, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son of the Holy Spirit, in the in of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. So this is, this is the command he gives. This is, this is our, our privilege as disciples. The, the main verb that just kind of drives the Great Commission is the the making of disciples, right? Everything else is kind of wrapped around that reality. So the going is, it has that force of like, it's a command you need to, to go and to do it, but it really comes out of this making disciples. So that's really what, what Jesus is focusing in on is, is the making of disciples. That's what he wants his people to do. So first, what is a, what is a disciple? Anybody? Disciple? Yeah, student, like a technically a learner or a, a follower, right? That's what somebody who's gonna who's gonna believe and follow. So he says he wants to make disciples. So what? How do we make disciples? He asked me make a cake. I can do that. And make an omelet. Really good at those. Make a disciple. Well, how do you make a disciple? we learn from the the rest of the Bible that making a disciple we look at the way Jesus does it he, he speaks the word of God he comes in mark chapter 1 preaching and proclaiming repent and believe the gospel right the way you make a disciple he's primarily speaking the gospel the good news of Jesus Christ attempting to persuade people to believe that truth of the gospel so that they follow Jesus and submit to him so it's what he's He's calling his disciples to make disciples, to make followers of him. And so it's incumbent on disciple makers to have the message of the gospel. We got to have that down. We got to know the gospel. We got to believe it ourselves. And we have to tell other people. You might say, "Well, listen, I'm not a theologian. I'm not seminary trained. I'm not really comfortable. I'm not an extrovert. I do that. I cannot." be in these types of high-pressure theological conversations, I don't know how to answer all the objections. Well, here's the reality. Nobody has every answer to every single question. Um, everybody gets stumped and doesn't know all the answers, but we know what we do know. If you're a Christian, you like the guy in John 9, when they were asking him technical questions and the guy that was blind, he's like, listen, well, he's the Messiah, and he's this, he's that. He's like, I, I don't know. But I'll tell you what. I was blind, and now I see. What do you think about that? (laughs) And so they're asking you all kinds of questions. You just push back and be like, listen, man, that's a good question, but I'll tell you what. I was blind, and now I see. I was enslaved to sin, but then I met Jesus, the Galilean. My life has changed. Let me tell you about him and what he's done, right? We can do that. If we're a Christian, we can talk about Jesus. And so making disciples is talking about Christ to people with an aim to persuade them but it's not just disciples um, we actually see the verse 20 that as they get baptized and they become part of the, the church family it's this this teaching aspect so teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you we'll come back to the mechanics of what it goes but I just want you to see both making and I would say training disciples or teaching. Some people would say reaching and teaching or making and training disciples. So there's two sides of this, this command. Both reaching lost people with the gospel so they believe, and then see people trained or equipped or taught to obey all the things that Jesus said. You might put it this way. What Jesus is after here, let's put it in real simple terms, is helping people to know and follow Jesus. I think Mark Dever put it that way in a very succinct way. I don't want to steal from him. That's very helpful to me. What Jesus is after here is helping people to know Jesus and follow him. So there's an evangelistic aspect there. We want to help people know Jesus. They don't know him. They don't know the gospel. We want to tell them the gospel. And then there's people that know Jesus... That may be part of our local church, probably primarily part of our local church, or maybe people that are not connected to a church that are struggling, and you want to see them become a, a, a faithful disciple in the context of community. You want to encourage them to be part of a church. So helping people to know and follow Jesus—that's the great burden of the great commission. And you'd say, well, listen, I—I I actually don't think this is for me, because. Again, I'm not an apostle. This was given to the apostles, um, and I'm not very extroverted. I don't know all the answers. This is just for them. It's not for me. And you push back. But notice what Jesus says here in verse 20, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. One of the things that Jesus is commanding his disciples is to make and train disciples. So one of the things that need to be taught in the context of the church community is how to reach people with the gospel and how to teach people God's word, Helping people to know Jesus and to follow Jesus. And so that's the the privilege of the disciple is to go and help other people to know Christ and to follow him. And certainly there's different different levels of that. I think primarily uh, when he's giving this command to make disciples and teach them and then baptize them. Obviously, we're not baptizing um, people in a bathtub or in a hot tub at the Y or something like that. It's in the context of the church family where we we see people baptized as their profession of faith is is heard. uh, However, your congregation brings in, in new members with some type of vote or affirmation of them coming into fellowship and baptism and They've been united to Christ through faith and they've demonstrated that through baptism and they come into the church family. Um, that's something that's done through the, the leadership of the church and the congregation working that out. And we participate in that. So as members of a church, we're, we're part of that process of helping people to know Jesus and follow Christ. And so that's, that's the privilege we have of, as disciples. All right? So you see that in here. Jesus is calling us to do that. And then that gets worked out as you see it teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you and behold them with you to the end of the age So this practice of the disciples goes on all the way to the end of the age to the end of the time So the church Jesus promises is going to not shut down Some individual churches will shut down But the church will not be shut down the gates of hell cannot prevail against it the church will continue on to the end of the age the Lord is in his church with his people, and he's going to be with his people to accomplish this work. And that, that sometimes could be a real encouragement, or it could be really convicting, depending on it, depending on your engagement level with this, helping people to know and follow Jesus. On the one level, it could be really encouraging. and saying, man, this is hard work. I'm not seeing a lot of fruit. Some people are resistant, and I'm, I'm seeing somebody walk away from the faith, or somebody in sin, and this person's doesn't seem like they're following Christ and this person is rejecting the gospel and you can be pulling your hair out and you're so discouraged and you look and you hear, I am with you always. Then you might hear it the other way. You're like, I'm really not engaged in this. I'm kind of on the sideline. You know, I show up for church on Sunday morning, but then that's about it. I just kind of come and go. And you hear, I am with you always. And you're like, yeah, the boss is there. I need to work. I need to get to work on this. I need to engage. I need to roll up my sleeves and get to the work of helping people to know and follow Jesus. I think I remember that quote that, that Deborah made more fully. He said, if you say, I follow Jesus and you don't help other people to know and follow Jesus, then I have no idea what you mean when you say, I follow Jesus. It's kind of late in the afternoon. It's been 24 hours. In other words, you say, I'm a Christian, and you don't help other people to know Jesus and follow him. Then Deborah's like, I have no idea what you mean by saying I'm a Christian. Because if you follow Jesus, this is what you do, because this is what he commands us to do. So as men, as Christian leaders, as guys who are engaged in the, the ministry of the church, who are part of our church family, then we want to be engaged in this work. And there may be us actively sharing the gospel with somebody. It could be uh, supporting the ministry of the gospel through prayer, financial giving, um, encouragement in the context of the church. It could be actively discipling young people in the church, older people, new believers, older believers. It could be being discipled by someone else. Lots of ways that we can do this in the, in the context of our church family. But we want to give ourselves to that work, knowing that he's with us to the end of the age. And then, how are we doing on time? We're doing okay? Okay. One thing that's, that's encouraging to me, kind of wrapping this back into kind of the big picture of, of why this is such a big deal. Like this isn't just something at the end of Jesus' mission where he just kind of tacks it up on the wall. To do, great commission. It's like this new thing. He wants the world reached with the gospel. It's actually God's burden from the very beginning. And I want you to look at what he says in verse 18. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, given to to Jesus. He has all authority. And he gives this command to make disciples, uh, make people who are followers of Christ. Notice the the sphere of this, of all nations, all nations. All people group, all ethnos. all—it's—it's it's not just like all right. We want to check off, you know, Brussels. Uh, we check off Belgium, and we're gonna check off Chad, and we're gonna, you know, like check off the countries. Get one in each country. That's not what it is. It's, we're trying to make disciples of all people groups from all over the world. God has this desire and plan that the nations, the the great cultural variants of the entire planet that came about through judgment in Babel would actually be reached with the Gospel and the the confusion and the disunity that happened there would actually be reversed and people would be gathered together to worship Jesus as one man. That their goal to make a great name for themselves would actually be undone and it would be a great name for God through that judgment. And I think it's interesting when you see this kind of continuity coming through the Scriptures Let's just turn back to a couple of passages and just want to show you how it works itself out since we have a little bit of time. Genesis 1. Genesis 1, we looked at it last night, Genesis 1. So in Genesis 1 when God creates verse 26 he says let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and the birds. Everything is just authority given to man over the earth. In verse 27 so God created man in his own image. In the image of God he created him. And male and female he created them. and he said bless them and God said to be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth, subdue it, and have dominion over the fish and the sea. So there's this authoritative command given, this command to be fruitful and to multiply, and there's this reality of the image. Now God gives this image, and it's interesting doing the, the reading on kind of like image in the Old Testament, and so like if you had a king that conquered a land, he would put his his icon or his image, his statue representation throughout the land to demonstrate his authority and would reflect his presence and his power. And so what what many have speculated here is this image bearing is a reflection of God's regal authority over his people. So as image bearers, we are distinct from the rest of creation in that we have the privilege and the responsibility of rightly reflecting God's rule. And re- representing him as kind of like vice regents on the earth. How amazing is that? We have the opportunity to reflect back to him who he is and what he has done and, and show everybody on the earth and everything on earth, this is how an image bearer lives. But of course, what happens? It's the fall. But the image of God doesn't disappear. We still have it, but it's been mud, it's been... Um, it they a vitiated. It's kind of like you've written on an ink paper, ink on paper, and it's got wet. It's just kind of blurred. You can kind of make out the words, but it's not the way it's supposed to look. And the image is still there. And so you have this, this burden of God that, as it says in Habakkuk chapter 2, the whole earth will be filled with the glory of God. But the reality is that we're sinning and we're falling short of the glory of God. But don't you know, repeatedly throughout the Old Testament, at various times, this phrase of being fruitful and multiplied comes out. And you see it actually at times of what might look like uh, disaster and things are falling apart. You have it here in Genesis 1 right before to show us what's going on. And then you you have it. We're not going to turn to all of these now, but in Genesis chapter 8, there's which is then with the, the flood with Noah, Genesis chapter 9, Verse 1, and in 7, be fruitful and multiply, increase greatly on the earth and multiply in it. So there's this command to Noah after the flood to be fruitful and multiply. And then you see the same thing happening with the patriarchs and their descendants in Genesis 28. God Almighty bless you, so El Shaddai bless you and make you fruitful and multiply you. In chapter 35, verse 11 of Genesis, God said, I am God Almighty, be fruitful and multiply. A nation and a company of kings shall come from you. Then Genesis 47, Israel settled in the land of Egypt, in the land of Goshen. They gained possessions in it and were fruitful and multiplied greatly. Genesis forty-eight, the same phrase again. Behold, I will make you fruitful and multiply you. I'll make you a company of peoples. I'll give you this land to your offspring. Over and over. And then you see it in chapter one of Exodus. We looked at it a little bit last night. In Exodus chapter one, that same phrase in verse seven. It's four hundred years after the patriarchs are dead and they're gone. And the people of Egypt, uh, I mean the people of Israel, are in Egypt. They're enslaved. They're increasing and multiplying. Verse 7. But the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly, and they multiplied and grew exceedingly strong, so that the land was filled with them, just like God said. In Leviticus, you have the same thing. Chapter 26, verse 9. I will turn to you and make you fruitful and multiply and confirm my covenant with you. And then... Jeremiah chapter 23, look at this verse, Jeremiah 23. What I'm trying to do is build the significance for what you're doing. I want you to see it. It's not just something tacked on the board. Jeremiah chapter 23. where God is ushering judgment upon the shepherds who destroy and scatter the sheep. Brings judgment upon them. You've scattered my flock. Verse 2, Behold, I will attend to you for your evil deeds, declares the Lord. And then verse 3, Then I will gather the remnant of my flock out of the countries that I have driven them, In his days, Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell securely. And this is the name by which he will be called. The Lord is our righteousness. You don't have to be a Bible scholar to know exactly who that is. The Lord Jesus Christ is the righteous branch. He is the Lord, our righteousness. And so here is Jeremiah bringing judgment upon the false shepherds while anticipating a future day when God's shepherd will come. And he will bring his people in. He will will count them, so to speak, as his sheep. Bring them in and number them as they've been scattered from the nations. And he'll bring them home. And they will come under his sheepfold. And they will be fruitful and multiply. They will reflect his image. Isn't that what we saw in Colossians this morning? Being renewed after the image of the Creator through the gospel. And so the, the the message of the gospel then becomes the means by which these lost people from the nations come home under the righteous branch, the shepherd. It's not about coming home physically, so to speak, to to be part of Israel, but spiritually to come under the righteous shepherd, to come and dwell in the house of the Lord, where we will he will be our God and we will be his people. To come be. In The presence of God in the great eternal tabernacle and he will bring us home And God will set shepherds up according to Jeremiah I think the pastors in the churches he will he will set shepherds up who will be good shepherds Who will take care of them who will feed them the word and then he'll show us in chapter 31 and in that day They will they will know the Lord The Lord will write the law of God on their hearts and they will believe it And so he calls us in Matthew 28 to the great privilege of seeing it all fulfilled. The branch has come, the righteous one has come, he's defeated death, he's rose from the dead, he is the king, and in his victorious speech to his people, he says, in essence, be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth with my glory, fill your church with my glory through the message of the gospel Teach the people to obey all that the Lord says. May they be people who grow in their understanding of his word and his faithfulness. And do it. So that, that's the that's the significance. It's like there's no more significant thing in, in the entire world, not only now, but in the history or in the future of the world, than being part of the administration of the kingdom of God. That's going to continue to, to demonstrate his glory throughout all eternity. And we get to be part of that. As we serve in the church and we help people to know and follow jesus that's amazing and that's why i think we see the apostle paul do what he does in colossians just take it there at the end just to show some particular application how would you apply this be part of your church be faithful in your church but look what paul does in colossians 4 He, he Brings it at the end of three and into four. It might seem like Paul's shifting out of personal stuff now to kind of your regular life, but I don't think so. I think it's the way in which we as Christians should live. In chapter three, he's talking kind of about the, the family life. Wives, submit to your husbands. Husbands, love your wives. Don't be harsh with them. Children, obey your parents and everything. Fathers, do not provoke your children. She's got this, what does it look like in the family that the gospel has come home? The way the wife and the husband relate to each other, the way specifically for us as as men, if we're married, how we treat our wives, how we love our wives is Ephesians chapter 5. It's not just a bunch of practical advice for a good marriage. It's practical advice and essential advice for a God-glorifying marriage. To live with your wife in a way that's understanding and loving and to lay down your life for her like Jesus did. To, see her sac- to sacrifice yourself that she might be washed with the word. And to be a dad that doesn't exasperate his kids and provoke them, but lovingly trains them and tends to them and cares for them. He treats, treats siblings, par- older parents with honor. Works in the church, the church family, helping people to know and follow Jesus. And then works it out into the community. Verse 22, bond servants obey in everything. Those who are your earthly masters, not by eye service. Don't just work hard when the boss is around as people pleases, but with sincerity, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men. Knowing that from the Lord you leave an inheritance, receive an inheritance for your reward. You're serving the Lord, the Lord Christ. Here's the significance, brothers. As you go do your job, it's not primarily your boss. Or whoever signs your checks that you're trying to please. Yeah, you want to show them honor. But as it says here, it's the Lord Christ you serve. And you serve Christ because he's been so good. And you know you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You, 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 You serve knowing that he takes note of how you serve. What's significance? You think of how you interact with. People, if you're in a position of authority, it says in chapter 4, verse 1, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing you have a master in heaven, to be gracious and just and fair with them. And then he works it out into the the community in verse 2. He says, continue steadfastly in prayer or be devoted to prayer, being watchful in it. And pray also for us. Paul is saying, pray the gospel would go forward. You're not participating in the gospel by speaking the words where Paul is. But Paul is saying, would you please participate in the gospel with me by praying that God would open a door for the word. I need you. The mission needs you praying. That's what he's asking for. And so you're working nine to five or eight to eight or whatever. And you feel like, man, I, what am I doing? How am I participating? Brother, pray. That God would open a door for the word in New Jersey for the gospel to go forward. That God would save people through the ministry of Maranatha Grace Church and other churches. Pray and labor that the gospel would go forward. And in that way you participate in the gospel, advancing. And then he says, you know, as you're you're praying, he says in verse 5, walk in wisdom towards outsiders, making the best use of the time. It's kind of like he says in Ephesians, um, uh, redeem the time. Here he's saying walk in wisdom. So in other words, there's a way to walk that's unwise, and there's a way to walk that's wise. It It would be incumbent on us to pray that we walk in a way that is wise when we interact with unbelievers so that we can make the most of our time. How do we want to do that? Well, let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt. Always have the gospel taste in your mouth. Let your words be seasoned with salt, the, the words that, that that may bring conviction, but that are also savoring and um, in the sense of like preserving. Speak the word of truth. No ask God to give you words to speak at the right time. So many times we pray for opportunities. We we need to probably take the opportunities too, huh? Pray that God would give us opportunities to speak the gospel and that we would take those that He gives us so we know how to answer each person. It's all about investing in people and stewarding our time intentionally, whether we're we're a husband, dad, pastor, church member, community member, work at your job, wherever we are, wherever you are, think about how am I taking the gospel into this place? How am I trying to help people to know and follow Jesus? I remember being absolutely floored working in an insurance company in Omaha, Nebraska. Praying for opportunities to talk to people and then people wanting to talk. I wish I could say like the whole office got saved. That didn't happen. But I did get to evangelize every single person in our office uh, by praying and people would come and ask questions and you'd spend time with them or you'd initiate conversations. uh, But praying that God would talk to them. Maybe making a rule as you, I don't want to bind anybody's conscience here, but if you're the kind of guy that works well under rules for yourself. Maybe this is something to think. Put a put a clock. I think Whitfield had 10 minutes or 7 minutes. If if you're having a conversation for 10 minutes with somebody, try to turn it to the gospel. 5 minutes is not bad. Turn the conversation to the gospel. Ask spiritual questions about it. Um, opportunities to pray for co-workers and swing towards the gospel. Think about serving in the church in the nursery, teaching the kids the, the word of God, or having people over your house, and it, with the specific goal of encouraging them. Way and I were talking on the way up, um, and just saying like ways to to do this, like by asking a simple question: H- How is your walk with the Lord? Instead of just walking up to somebody and I mean, guys, let's just be honest. New York sports teams stink. I mean, guys, just stop, <laughs> just stop talking about it. Like just. The weather and the sports, I don't know what you... I mean, real estate, weather, sports, just move on. Just go right to the good stuff. No, I'm joking. All I've restrained myself. Last hours. No, uh, we're not much better. So, uh, But no, just the opportunity that we can just talk about all this trivial stuff, but we can say, listen, how is your soul with the Lord? How can I be praying for you? And what have you been reading in the Bible? Anything you took from the sermon this morning? Anything big coming up this week I pray for? you have any fellowship with anybody in the church? Just the questions. How are they doing? How are you and the Lord doing? Like you care and ask that. Then follow up after you pray. Have somebody over the house just for a meal and to talk and just, just ask how they're doing and how you can pray for them. These all seem like really small things, but they're really substantial things insignificant significant things. So as you think about this this whole these three talks I've talked a lot probably close to 3 hours to you at you on this if we could just peel it back and just say okay a christian leader has the the gospel as his model for how to lead and his motivation for why to lead the first step he's got to he's got to realize that he n- needs to know who he is for a holy God And that should make him humble Especially in light of the gospel and Then Equipped with that knowledge In the reality of the gospel That he's actually going somewhere Then have your soul calibrated to heaven And live Like a Christian Be serious About sanctification And give yourself to it Say no to things That don't help And say yes to the things that don't to glorify God then finally think about bringing people with you not like a lot who lost so many in his travel think about your own family if you have kids your wife your kids extended family friends co-workers people in your church and begin praying for them make a list of people that aren't Christians make a list of people that are Christians and you you pray for them pray for church family members pray for them by name Pray that God would allow you to to encourage them to grow in grace of Christ. That's leadership. People that care. People that are trying to bring people to heaven with them. Investing in people intentionally for the glory of Christ. And when you get discouraged, and think, man, this is hard. It's not bearing a lot of fruit. Remind yourself that that Habakkuk says the whole earth is going to be filled with the glory of the Lord. That the God who wants people to reflect his image and to be fruitful and multiply are now beginning to reflect the image of God through the gospel as they're being fruitful and multiplying, the church is growing. And one day, there's going to be tribe, every tribe and tongue, people and nation are going to be around that throne. And the king is going to get his glory. And we're going to be there. And we'll find out stories of people that prayed for us, cared for us, loved us. We'll see some people there that we didn't expect to see there. We'll see, we'll look around and not see people that we might have expected to see there. But then we'll look and be shocked by the greatest wonder of all, that we're there. May God give us grace to be faithful And to serve them steward your time brothers thank you let's pray our father we thank you for the gospel thank you for the lord jesus christ who loved us and gave himself for us thank you for the privilege of serving the king bringing the gospel to friends and family neighbors in the nations lord would you use us to that great end bless our efforts. Give us endurance in you and joy in the work. And pray for this church that you would cause it to be fruitful and multiply and reflect the image of Christ. We pray in his name. Amen. Amen.